is Creating Windows, Not Bars, a monthly show on Justice Radio on WMPG with your hosts, Mackenzie Kelly and Linda Small. Today, we are talking with Daniel Porter, a graduate student in a Peace and Reconciliation program about how to develop compassion within a correction setting. But first, a little information about us. I'm Mackenzie Kelly, a recovery coach and peer mentor coordinator of Healthy Acadia and the program director of Reentry Sisters. Now I'm Linda Small, a project coordinator with Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and executive director of Reentry Sisters, an organization with a trauma-informed and gender approach to reentry support. For the past several months, we've worked together to provide support and community for justice-impacted women as they reunify with their families, look for work and housing, and complete their educational aspirations. Our show explores safety and community and asks what it's like for people to come home after serving time in prison. Today, we're talking about the challenges of harm reduction inside our correctional facilities and the possibility of developing compassion in corrections. We'll begin with an introduction. Dan, can you please tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to study uh, peace and reconciliation? As Linda said, I'm a graduate student through UMO. Um, I, I've been out of, out of prison for about two months now. I just served 11 years at the Maine State Prison. I'm on a supervised community confinement program. And one of the things that has drawn me to this kind of work is you know, lived experience, and I have a, a lot of loved ones still that are living in the system and being affected by it. And uh, can you tell us what you mean by needless harm in, in corrections? Yeah, sure. Um, any social system, in my opinion, you know, is going to be imperfect. It's all man-made, and, and so there's going to be, you know, inefficiencies and a reasonable harms being done. And when it comes to the Department of Corrections, uh, for your listeners, like I'm sure many of you have heard that the United States uh, incarcerates at a higher rate than any other country in the world. Uh, many of you have likely heard long talks about recidivism rates or disproportionate arrest rates. Uh, you've listened as very educated people, for example, urge you to become eager and get involved to somehow make a change happen. If if you're like most people, perhaps you do sympathize, you know, perhaps you agree, but even though you may care in the moment, uh, all the astonishing, astonishing carceral statistics, uh, which ex, uh, express an improvable and imperfect system at best and complete systematic failure at worst, fade from your mind as you begin to go about your life again. And the reason is simple in my opinion, uh, it is our nature to believe that um, people need to be punished. It is like deeply ingrained in our DNA to believe that our society's existence depends on punishing those who break the law. But that doesn't work. I don't know, to sum it up more succinctly, uh, the harm that our carceral system does to incarcerated people uh, sort of falls on deaf ears when it comes to society members on the whole, because they believe that people who have done harm deserve to be, they can accept a certain amount of needless harm being done to them by an imperfect system. But what, what I'm working towards and the way I hope to bring light to the subject is by showing the, the needless harm that's being done to the staff members who work in these systems. And hopefully that'll bring light to 
uh, the overall system imperfections and improvable places on a, on the whole. I love that you said that. That's great. What do you mean by mental and spiritual harm exactly? That's sometimes difficult to express without eye contact. So over a radio show, it might be difficult. But when I have talked about this for the last couple of years, I've developed some of these theories. Many of the rooms that I'm in when I'm making eye contact with people and we start talking about the human connection, it seems transferable from my mind into theirs and people understand and I can feel that there's a connection happening in the room. But a quick way to maybe express it to radio listeners is okay, if you've given a gift to somebody and they get excited about it, you can often feel you get excited too. And in a similar way, if you do harm to somebody and you witness it happen, you can feel and carry that and it affects you as you go forward in life. And what I'm proposing is that the way our current system is set up, uh, staff members often are put into a position where they're almost encouraged because of the structure of the system, not because of any one person's initiatives, that it's kind of a status quo to to do harm. That's what's expected. And and when they do that day in and day out over, you know, a 20, 30 year career, they're incurring uh, their a level of harm, which almost equates to a level of forfeiture of humanity and dignity on their own part. And this is happening needlessly and it's changing them as a human being as, you know, they go home and interact with their children, their family, their society. There are infinite uh, first person narratives of from wives and, and loved ones, uh, and, or I should say partners and loved ones of, of a lot of correctional staff who say, you know, he wasn't like this before he started working at the prison or she never, you know, used to drink so much before she started working at the prison. And I think that's like a manifestation of, of what they're carrying around by being a part of the a system that focuses on punishment rather than rehabilitation. Yeah, that's fabulous, Dan. Thank you for that insight. Um, I think it really helps the listener create a framework of what you're talking about and what we're talking about today. What I think might be helpful is, could you maybe give an example of what a needless harm might look like or feel like? In the Department of Corrections, if you go to work in the Department of Corrections, you're going to be warned, you know, it's going to start off as a discussion with your family, most likely. It's going to be, I'm thinking about taking that job that I heard on the radio. You know, that's pretty good pay. I'm going to look into it. And your family will more often than not, you know, warn you about the physical danger. Then when you go into the academy, they're going to warn you that you're going to be dealing with dangerous people. Nobody is going to warn you about the, the real mental danger that comes with it. And so walking into a pod the first time or living a living area and seeing 60 or 70 people in cages is not a naturally occurring thing. And so just the way business is handled on the day-to-day, -day, like the normalization of imprisonment 
and the way that it is carried out is an example of a needless harm just the structure that you could start with the structure of the facility and go as deep as you want and and you'll find hundreds of examples of just standard procedure that create a needless a needless harm to the humanity of the staff member and obviously the the humanity of all the people living in the system in the system i would say just like the systematic way that things are done the way that life is carried out um that's that's brilliant dan thank you um that's a very interesting um perspective to look at to begin with staff right because a lot of advocates talk about the folks who are incarcerated and not a lot of people are having that conversation right now about what it does to the folks who work there and then in turn the families just like the incarcerated families right the loved ones of the incarcerated um, are struggling, so are the loved ones of those folks who work there. So obviously it is telling us all that this system is not working as it is. So can you share with us a little bit um, about how you begin to develop this instruction manual that um, offers Department of Correction staff compassionate correction training? And what does that look like? No, absolutely. Um, I took a class as part of my graduate program that was on on developing instructions. And basically what it teaches you is to, you know, come up with what you want the outcome to be and work backwards. And so the point behind all of this, um, I'm trying to be succinct as possible for the sake of time. Obviously, I'm prone to rambling. The reason that I'm doing all of this is to improve conditions for the people that are living and working in these systems and improve conditions for society on the whole. So one of the things that you start with is an enduring understanding, and, and that's really the driving force behind the instruction that I, I hope to be delivering. Um, and one of the enduring understandings in, in this instruction that would be given to correctional staff at post school is that it is impossible to view another human being as less than human without harming one's own humanity. And, you know, that that sounds pretty basic and everyone usually nods their head in, in agreement. But one of the essential questions that, you know, begins the narrative in this instruction it's just a, a dialogue. For example, um, can anybody in the room think of a scenario or a time throughout history that societies have deemed it acceptable to view an entire group of people as other? And from there, I really go into the concept of othering and the harm that it does, but also how othering is used as a tool. And from taking examples that are so outside the scope, you're better able to and through dialogue and personal narrative, you're better able to connect with the student, or in this case, a staff member, or potential or aspiring staff member. You can get them to feel their aversion to othering before they realize that you're guarding, you're guarding them against the situation that they're about to go into. Because in, in a correctional setting, it is common practice to other one of the the key takeaways would be like, why do we other? And so, I I would ask them, you know, 
an essential question of like, do you understand why we other? Do you understand why we attempt to view people as somehow less than? Generally speaking, it, it is in order to establish a justification for ill treatment. So why do we seek this justification? And generally speaking, we seek this justification as a way to block the pain that results from doing harm. We know that we're about to cause harm, so we other as a preemptive justification. And like showing the aspiring staff member and getting them on board with the dangers of othering is, is going to, in the long run, when they find themselves in a position where the system is pushing them towards or, or grooming them towards othering, because like I said, it's not a normal, a normally occurring thing to witness 70 people in cages in one room. And so you other as a defense mechanism just to get through the day because you can't have a bunch of staff members, you know, being emotionally caught up at, at the sight of people in cages. So we other, but in the process of doing that, the staff member you know, forfeits a level of their own dignity. You're listening to Creating Windows, Not Bars, Justice Radio with Mackenzie Kelly and Linda Small. Today, we're talking to Daniel Porter, a graduate in a peace and reconciliation program about developing compassion within correction setting and what that looks like. What I'm really trying to do is create a group consciousness. And so whereas they might be able to get away in the future with with um making excuses or tricking themselves into making excuses. If they know that everybody that's gone through the class with them also understands the the dangers of othering and the damage that comes with it and, and the harmful ramifications, they'll be less likely to, you know, for their subconscious to trick them into thinking they can get away with it and go down that road. And it really, you know, just creates an environment where people are forced to look at what's actually happening, which actually happening is that there are 70 human beings in cages and how do we address that in a humane way? I mean, in my opinion, it's time that we tried a new lens when viewing correctional systems, you know, one in which the correctional staff is supported in helping rather than one in which pressure staff to inflict punishment. That's really the driving force behind the instruction is to educate people that it is they, they don't need to go about it a certain way. When you think of corrections, it doesn't have to be a militarized SOG team. It can be a place to regroup. Like for me, uh, the main state prison was basically a you know a combination of a monastery and college campus. And it's a, it, it can be similar things for other people, and it can be similar things for the staff as well. And it doesn't have to be as combative. That is so helpful um, to give us a, a, an idea of what you're getting at. And, you know, I can relate to the othering as a tool. Um, unfortunately, we see that throughout our society, right, with um, immigration, race issues, and all of those things that are causing us strife right now across the country. Um, I also like that this idea of enduring understanding, which, you know, there is universal harm in corrections, right? It's not a, just about a single harm or harming this particular individual. And I recall talking to 
um, uh, Department of Corrections caseworker once who said, you know, when people come in here, they're not here to be punished. The act of punishing was the court sending you here. We're here to get you on to the next phase of your life, which I think is also a, a healthy attitude to have. Um, could you maybe give an example of how um, that might look like inside corrections? Um, obviously, a staff member can't open the door and let everybody out. Um, so what is it exactly would corrections look like if a staff member comes into a unit and sees those 70 individuals in cages? What can they do to minimize the harm to themselves and to the folks living there? I, I believe this is something that is already being hinted at with the, the concept of the main model of corrections. And what it's going to take, in my opinion, is a complete change in group consciousness. And so if there's a peer pressure element that's coming from a training officer, for example, like it needs to start from the bottom up from the re recruit up, but it also needs to stop, start from the top down. And I think in some ways we're working towards that in our in our current system in the state of Maine. It's, it's simply that where we're finding the rub is in, is in the middle often. And, and so there might be, you know, four or five senior staff members who control a lot of the narrative, like the, the, the commissioner can spread one message and potentially, hopefully, in the future, I can or somebody can, you know, uh, offer the message up to rookie recruits. But they can know the commissioners behind it. They can know they're being taught it at post school. And then on the ground, if the sergeant or captain or whoever it may be is of an old school, you know, mentality they're not going to feel comfortable expressing it. So it's really, in my opinion, about being like loud enough, fast enough, honest enough, so that people are empowered to act the way they believe is right and act with a, a group consciousness. In It's not rocket science. It's meeting people where they're at and treating people with humanity like, so if you're a staff member going into the new pod and you can't just open up all the doors and let people out, well, well that's okay because when I first got to the main state prison, um, if they had opened the doors and let me out, you know, I wouldn't have been afforded the time to work on myself and become the man I am today. Uh, I was not in the mindset to be let out, uh, but rather than, you know, find ways to inflict harm, uh, dehumanize or punish, you can create a structured, safe environment that promotes or, or offers up uh, the opportunity for people to explore developing skills of some sort. And so as a staff member going in, you could go in with the mindset of the security is already taken care of. There's, you know, there's fences, there's 17 locked doors. Um, it's not for me to, to go in with the pressure of trying to stop a mass escape. It's for me, like, that's all been taken away. And I'm a security officer, and I can go in with the mindset of 
This is a secure environment. Now I have the ability to meet these people where they're at and offer them, you know, a good morning. How are you doing? Rather than a, a, a gruff exterior or like, I mean, there a lot of staff members are literally trained to appear hostile so that, you know, they're not taken as, as weak. Well, in my opinion, like, you you hold all the keys, so you're you, like being appearing weak is something that you're gonna have to work on 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 your own. As and you shouldn't necessarily be worried about that. You should you know feel safe and feel confident going into your role and be able to promote compassion in a way not not like any difficult training just promote compassion in how would you greet somebody anywhere else on the planet so dan um the main department of corrections has over 1300 employees and an annual budget over 186 million dollars which is a lot of tax money what compelling arguments can you make to convince the commissioner that your program is worth giving a try i spoke with the commissioner many years ago uh he came to one of our classes as a guest and I asked him like a very basic on the spot question of like, if everybody knows that there's a couple bad apples, for example, in the group, um, if there's a couple officers that, you know, aren't very pro-social and are a little bit more aggressive than they need to be and things like that, and everybody knows who they are on every shift. Like, how can you expect me to buy in if they're allowed to continue to exist and, and you know, have have power over other human beings' lives? They, they, there should be some sort of vetting process to stop them from even getting into these roles if, if they're not the, the, the right personality. And, you know, the commissioner's always been very open to conversation. I actually get along with him very well. And, and he told me, he said, Dan, we're... In the mid coast Maine, paying you know seventeen dollars an hour, and I don't I don't have people, I don't have a an extensive line of people beating down my door trying to get in here. Because we're already short staffed. Do you want me to get rid of another half a dozen officers? And you guys all you know, essentially never have any programs. It's like he's he's trying to. I understand that it's more complex than maybe my perspective views it, and I, I definitely don't want to uh, unfoundedly attack the DOC, but I, I believe that with creating, okay, the, the sales pitch, and the sales pitch I intend to deliver to them hopefully next week or the week after would be something along the lines of, you're promoting this new main model of corrections approach from the top. If you allow us to come in and present something from the bottom, the sales pitch would be that if you create a better atmosphere, a better group consciousness, that a structure will be made, an environment will be made where rather than trying to find the budget for the newest, you know, next super prison 50 years from now, a level of compassion will be delivered within the Department of Corrections 
so that a level of need is answered within the Department of Corrections so that the recidivism rate drops because there'll be less people getting out confused, frustrated, and you know, without their needs being addressed. And so if the mission is to have less people incarcerated, which usually, you know, which ends up with less people recidivating, if the mission is to have less victims in society, uh, less people victimized, then I feel like we can afford to attempt to infuse the system with a little bit of compassion, afford to try to be a little bit more understanding of some of the narratives. Uh, a, a lot of people, listen, if, if you wind up at the main state prison, you're one of 900 people in the state that's there. And it's not generally speaking because you've had all the breaks in life and you've had all the chances and squandered them. Uh, most of the stories that I've run into up there are of people being failed by every adult in their life throughout life. And the idea of compassion and uh, community is so foreign to them that they think that I'm, you know, trying to manipulate them. They think I'm trying to get over on them by selling them some sort of fairy tale, the kind of love and family and uh, community that many of us take for granted is completely devoid and foreign from many of these uh, incarcerated citizens lives and they don't have that in their story and so imagine them finding that from a person who's been put in power over them for the first time in their life maybe they can start buying into the fact that they maybe can be a part of a community when they get out. Maybe they will be accepted. If this person that they viewed as other themselves, if the law, if the man, if the officer is extending a genuine hand and trying to help them, you know, maybe they accept it. Maybe they get out and hold down a job and become a quality citizen and don't cause any further harm. Just that's the sales pitch. Yeah, that's a really good point, Dan, about the ripple effect of what a little bit of compassion and understanding can do in a system that is uh, brutal by its very nature. So thank you, Dan, for sharing with us your vision for creating compassion inside a system that dehumanizes and causes trauma for everyone involved in corrections. In coming shows, we will explore public safety, the unique stigma justice-impacted women face, and the experiences and struggles of returning citizens to create meaningful and productive lives. Next week, please join Representative Charlotte Warren and Zoe Bocas on Justice Radio to learn what can be done to redefine and reimagine equity, restoration, and justice through legislative action. Make sure you visit the Justice Radio show page on WMPG.org for archived episodes aired on WMPG and WERU. And a big thank you to Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. 